Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. So today's guest is a mom, but she's also my sister, Heidi, and she's the perfect person to have on this episode because, well, we were raised by the same mom and we both have kids and we both are interested in why people kill and this is a safe space. You've probably wondered if one of your three kids is going to become a serial killer. Paige? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Uh, Absolutely. I didn't in the beginning, but as she aged, I do question what her future will look like. Well, she just doesn't, like, the others are so emotional, and she's just kind of like, I don't give a shit. Like, she just is, when she was really little, her dad is super aggressive and loud, and everybody would, like, cower in fear, and she'd be like, tame the lion, tame the lion, and just take whatever she wanted. Or when I flew you guys out to New York, and it was like, I was so excited to have my family there, and you bought her Tootsie Rolls, and she's in bed eating them. She's six, eating one after the other, and Taylor's like, mom's going to kill you. And she's like, I don't see mom here. Yeah. And what's really scary is she loved New York. Of course she did. She She likes Vegas. Yes. Of course she did. So growing up with me, did you ever think I could turn into a serial killer? Definitely, because you acted so sweet and innocent, <laughs> but really, in your mind, you're having those thoughts, like, mm. I'm going to blackmail my sister. I did. I had to blackmail you. You were five and a half years older than me and much stronger than me, and I had to blackmail you. That was the only way I could do it. Okay. Um, okay. Do you, Heidi, have any idea what we're going to be talking about today? No idea. We're talking about infamous spree killer Andrew Cunanan. Do you remember Cunanan? Yeah. Gianni Versace. Versace. Killed Johnny Versace. That's yes. right. We're about to find out a lot more about him, more than you probably ever wanted to know. We're going to use a variety of sources that will be in the show notes if anyone wants them. But the 1997 article by Maureen Orth, which was later turned into her book, Vulgar Favors, um, was used as the basis of the American Crime Stories mini-series. It's called The Death of Gianni Versace. And in an interview about the series, the writer, his name is Tom Smith, said that Andrew doesn't kill people by accident. They symbolize something for him that he's missing from his own life, whether it's love, friendship, honor, ambition, success. He's cutting a path through all of these things he failed to achieve. So I want to put that out there as food for thought before detailing the the crimes. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. But let's go ahead and go through the crimes and see where we land. And he also knows much more about the crime than I do, but I know about criminals, and I just I feel like it's not quite that simple, but there might be something to it. So just prior to his crimes, 27-year-old Kunanen had been living in San Diego under the name Andrew Da Silva, and he was widely known in San Diego's gay community as a charismatic drug dealer with a tendency to seek out wealthy sugar daddies. I wonder if our half-sister knew her. We have a gay half-sister who lives in San Diego and was in San Diego at that time. And she did kind of look for a sugar mama. Remember? I need to ask her. (laughs) Um, So he'd be seeking out these sugar daddies, and he'd recently just broken up 
with his biggest meal ticket, Norman Blackford, and was now without financial allowance that he'd become dependent on. This guy kind of gave him an allowance and would take him everywhere, and he was became very fancy. Giving his friends the impression that he'd be moving to San Francisco, he has this like big farewell dinner on April 23rd, 1997 at a restaurant. And although Kunanan had invited guests to the dinner the night before he left town, he said he had no money to pay for it, and his friends ended up footing the bill. He'd also mentioned that before the big move to San Francisco, he had some business to take care of with Jeff Trail, who had recently moved to Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Bear in mind that Kunanan's former boyfriend, David Matson, also lived in Minneapolis and was actually the one to graciously pick up Kunanan from the airport upon his arrival to the city. Remember that, because it's important. But what his friends didn't realize was that the ticket he'd purchased to Minnesota was one way. All right, so first we're going to talk about Jeff Trail. And he and Kunanan had become friends in 1991 when they were living in San Diego, and Trail was actually stationed there. He was a naval officer. And Kunanan really considered Trail his best friend. He referred to him as my brother. And he helped set Trail up with other men. But the two were apparently never intimate. According to Trail's family, not only did they not date, it was the situation where if Jeff got a haircut, Andrew Kunanan got the same haircut. If Jeff got a baseball cap from the stadium, Jeff would go to the stadium, get the same hat. If Jeff did, then Kunanan would do that too. And then from that became this whole, like, after the murders, people would be like, ah, he's Andrew Kunananing me, which I heard all the time, which was in reference to, like, single white female, but the whole, like, you're obsessed with me situation. So that's how Jeffrey Trail's family characterizes their relationship. But other people say it was different. According to a former boyfriend of Trail's, his name's Daniel O'Toole, the friendship was just kind of a one-sided thing, and it had begun to sour. Andrew was aggressive, obnoxious, and domineering a lot of the time, and he got on Jeff's nerves, said O'Toole. But Jeff felt sorry for him, and Andrew thought he was Jeff's best friend, but Jeff definitely did not think the same of Andrew. So about a month before he's murdered, Jeff Trail has told a friend, or he had told a friend, that Kunanan had approached him to try to get him to be involved with some illegal business that he had, which we think might have been drug pushing. And Trail said politely, fuck you. No. So to friends who hadn't received as many details, he had just said to him, oh, no big deal. I had a falling out with Andrew. I really don't want to ever see him again. So needless to say, Jeff was not thrilled that Andrew was coming to Minnesota, and he didn't want to host him, but he said, look, I don't want to host him, but it's like a relative you don't like, but you have to let him stay. So that's the plan. So David Madsen, somebody I'd mentioned earlier, another um, friend and former lover of Kunanan's, picked him up at the airport, but then brought him to Trail's apartment to stay. So Kunanan stays at Trail's apartment on Saturday, April 26th, before heading over to former lover David Madsen's. He then, the next night, he calls Trail on Sunday evening to invite him over to Madsen's apartment. Tragically, 28-year-old Jeffrey Trail was found dead in Madsen's apartment just days after Kunanan's arrival to the city. He'd been beaten with a claw hammer, and his body rolled up in a rug. His watch stopped at 9.55 p.m., which investigators believe is the time of the killing on Sunday, April 27th. I wanted to stop for a second and just talk about a claw hammer. This is somebody you know and you're close to, and a claw hammer is an incredibly vicious, intimate way to kill somebody. 
you're not only, it's not only blunt force trauma, but it's also impaling them as you go. So that puts you in a category of viciousness and violence that is a little different than like shooting a former lover from far away, beating them with a claw. And this is his first kill. And he goes right to claw hammer. That is a very aggressive, very, he knows that you don't come back from hitting no. someone with a, the, a, ha- a hammer or the claw end of a hammer. Um, so he meant to kill him. There's no like. A hundred percent. And I'm not so sure that is his first kill. Maybe he Ooh. killed an animal. Maybe he the it was sick like thickens. that. Yeah. I'm, because who goes from zero to the, to so such an aggressive act? Good point. I hadn't thought of that. Maybe there are other dead people. And to be honest, that's not totally out of the realm of possibility because one of the reasons we wanted to cover this case is it's only Versace that people associate with Andrew Kunan and the, the other victims are just kind of I ignored. I had no clue. Okay. So when... Kunanen had stayed at Jeffrey Trail's house. He must have taken Jeffrey Trail's gun with him. This gun supposedly, reportedly, this was said by a friend of Jeffrey Trail's that he purchased that gun, he procured it to protect himself from Kunanen, saying, I've got this, I'm safe. So that makes me feel like there was a few hints or something. Yeah. Why would why would he feel like he needed a gun to protect himself? Right. So it was probably something subtle enough, like, look, I know this guy can fly off the handle. But bad enough for him to think he needed to protect himself. So Madsen and Jeffrey Trail had known each other through their connections um, through Kunanen. And there was speculation that Kunanen was jealous of that. Kunanen and Madsen had met in September of 1995 in San Francisco. And they were actually dating. Where it's unclear if he was dating Trail, it looks like he wasn't. We know Kunanen had dated Madsen. And their relationship had been long distance because Madsen lived in Minneapolis, but he had indulged all of Kunanen's S&M fantasies, and he was wooed by Kunanen's gifts and visits to fancy hotels. But he began to distance himself from Kunanen because Kunanen had this tendency to disappear or be non-responsive to communication. But that was probably because he was living in La Jolla with his sugar daddy, Norman. And you can see where it's like, I've got to support this lifestyle, but I have this boyfriend, but he's far away. So you can see how that whole right. web in their interactions after Madsen had moved on, he found himself batting down Kunanen's sexual advances. Kunanen confided in his own friends that he had felt rejected by Madsen. And as I mentioned, it was Madsen who picked up Andrew from the airport because he's a classy dude, but it didn't mean he was excited about his visit. He was actually really apprehensive, but he was just a super nice guy. So back to now Monday, April 28th, and 33-year-old Madsen fails to show up for work. However, his neighbors saw him walking his dog with Kunanen that day. Madsen's family members suspected that Madsen had accidentally walked in on Kunanen killing Jeffrey Trail and then was subsequently taken hostage by Kunanen. Unfortunately, there was a period of time where Madsen's family had to endure him being considered a suspect in Trail's killings. And they weren't informed about his disappearance in a timely manner as a result. So they just don't know what's happening. They know he's missing. They don't know if he's a suspect. They don't know where he went. Madsen's body was found five days later, about an hour away from Minneapolis, on the shore of East Rush Lake near Rush City, Minnesota. He had gunshot wounds to the head and back. His body showed no signs of restraints, and his only defensive wounds were his fingers. This is sad. Suggesting that he had raised his hands to deflect from one of the shots. It's a very different killing from the first one. And it could be because Kunanen didn't have access to a gun when he killed Trail. He didn't have access until he stole Trail's gun and then killed Madsen. But it's just 
it's so hard for me to get from that very personal, intimate, vicious killing. Third victim, 72-year-old Lee Miglin. He, along with his business partner, Paul Beitler, was the developer of some of the biggest buildings on the Chicago skyline. He was very wealthy, quite famous. The relationship between Cunanan and Miglin is hotly debated. I've read things that say he did not know him at all. He just ran into him one day while he was in the garage and saw an opportunity to steal some stuff from some rich dude. But Miglin does fit the description of the type of wealthy older man that Cunanan would have researched and carefully pursued. Definitely. When Miglin did not appear at the airport to pick up his wife of 38 years, who's a cosmetic mogul and home shopping network star Marilyn Miglin, she obviously became alarmed, and she went home to find their gate unlocked and her kitchen in disarray. Lee's green Lexus was also missing, and she called the police, obviously. Miglin's body was discovered by police under a car in his garage off the Miracle Mile in Chicago on Sunday, May 4th. The murder was brutal, seemed to be practically ritualistic. His hands and feet were bound. Mm -hmm. His body was partially wrapped in plastic, brown paper, and tape. He's like an old man. So, yeah, I think of ours. Oh, don't even uh, go well, there with no, Uncle John. No, not ever. But I could imagine, oh, like, the fear pissed. he must have felt. Like, you live your Heidi, whole life and— We have a really sweet Uncle John who we absolutely adore, and now I'm pissed. His face was taped except for two air holes for his nostrils. Oh, my gosh. That is He's so fucking sadistic. rude. Yeah. I really you know like what we do guy. with sadistic people well, that are mean to our family. That explains the rugs. Yeah. <laughs> this is especially disturbing due to the fact that the San Francisco Examiner had quoted a friend of Cunanan's who'd been, who had, he'd seen the previous weekend as saying, he expressed to me his interest in sadomasochistic sex. He was into latex, face masks with just the nostrils showing through. I'm sorry, but if he raped this poor man, I'm, I'm very angry. Miglin's ribs had been broken. No. I'm sorry. He'd been tortured with four stabs to the chest, probably with garden shears. Oh, my God. His throat had been cut open <gasps> with a garden bow saw. You know what a garden bow saw but, but is. But why? I don't understand. This poor man was just in the garage. And according to friends, the autopsy revealed no sexual molestation. Thank God. After the murder, Kunanen went into the house, slept in Miglin's bed, left a half-eaten ham sandwich in the library— Bathed in the bathtub, shaved in the white marble this is bathroom, kind of Richard leaving beard stubble on the floor and a toy gun on the sink, oh my almost as if to taunt police. The dog, a Labrador named Honey, which had been there the whole time, was calm and unharmed. Thank God. Between eight and ten thousand dollars in cash and several of Miglin's suits were missing. So I'm sorry. This you're is not a, just about robbery. You're just, you're a dick. I'm sorry, like, you just slaughtered an old man, a grandpa, and you're like, I need a nap? These type of cases are so hard for me because there's not a lot of information, like, is going to lead you to think that this person's going to become a killer. But something like this, where you take an old man, you've probably looked him up because of his wealth, he's the type of person you would have seduced to become a sugar daddy, You maybe he got rejected, who knows, but then to torture him, and it wasn't for sex, there was no evidence of rape. And then just chill in his house like you are a sugar daddy. Well, maybe he was like feeling like, oh, I'm so wealthy. This is my stuff. I'm going to go shave. I'm going to make yeah, a sandwich. Yeah, maybe it was the entitlement yeah, that exactly. we're going to dive way into. But I, as you're describing all these crimes, I'm remembering what he looks like on yeah. the news. Like mm -hmm. he had a baseball cap. He looked like an average 
He's so. actually pretty good looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I don't think so now. Well, now we hate him. Yeah. I- um, he's going to get carpeted real quick. Or <laughs> the up. Ward sisters are on their way. <laughs> yeah. It was the murder, of course, of this rich Lee Miglin, Cunanan's wealthiest and most prominent victim thus far, that puts him on FBI's most, most wanted, wanted list. Also pissing me off. Mm-hmm. This is, I see this bullshit all the time. And you know what's the worst? Is when the serial killer is killing prostitutes. You can have 40 of them before someone notices or cares or hits the news. Because of who his victims were. Right. It's being ignored. Yes. Until he kills a rich dude. So now he's on the FBI's wanted list. He's moved on from Lee Miglin's house. Where is he? Well, then there's the fourth victim, William Reese. This is sad. Presumed to have been killed on the 9th, the body of cemetery caretaker William Reese was found on May 10th, 1997, at his place of work, Finns Point National Cemetery in Pennsville, New Jersey. He was 45, and he had a wife and son. Reese had been shot in the head, and his red pickup truck was gone, replaced by a green Lexus with Illinois plates, the same one that Kunanen stole from Miglin's garage. It's interesting to me that he's shot, and I'm going to get his name wrong, I apologize, but the the first, the second guy... Yeah, uh, Madsen. So maybe there wasn't, like... A relationship well, there? that or was a, his true love. So maybe he couldn't butcher right, him. Right, I mean, Trail he was close to, too, but Trail he felt really— He was re- mad at him. He was mad at Trail. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he was mad at the— At Miglin. Yes, because there's some, some connection there, mm-hmm. possibly. No, there could be. And that's why it was so horrifying yeah. and so much damage. Maybe he rejected him. him. Maybe yeah. he wanted to be his sugar daddy. And like I mean, this, who knows? The man that works in the cemetery, maybe there's no connection. He just wanted to Well, he needed car. his car. Mm-hmm. He needed his car. So, um, okay, so it was later determined that Kunana did, like we were talking about, kill Reese solely for his truck. And it was considered by clinicians who study serial killers to be called a functional homicide. So you see that a lot. Once you're on the run, once you're doing it, there's some self-preservation and... Just a casualty of... Right. Craziness. Right. Right. So the fifth victim, the one we all know about, the only reason we know Kunanen's name, Johnny Versace. On the morning of July 15th, in Miami's vibrant South Beach neighborhood, beloved fashion designer Johnny Versace was returning to his villa after a walk when Kunanen approached him and shot him on the steps of his house. Kunanen then fled the scene on foot wearing a baseball hat and traveling, of course, through back alleys to avoid being detected. Police responding to the attack found Reese's stolen truck in a nearby parking garage, along with Kunanen's clothes, a fake passport, and newspaper clippings detailing his murders. I think he he got off by the attention. Like, he was glad he was on— the most wanted, yeah. Most, most wanted. Well, as list. we'll dive into his personality later, he really thought he was something special. Yeah. Um, I should mention that one of the reasons they were able to triangulate on him is he was kind of a booger eating moron. He was using Miglin's car phone because remember there was car right. phones. One hundred percent. I wanted one so bad. I know. But yeah, you wanted all the things. I wanted to be a Charlie's angel with the phone we're talk in about the car. That. I know. Okay, you did. Sorry, sorry. Who had the nineteen eighty four GLC Deluxe and who had the convertible Rabbit? I paid for that. We'll talk about that, too. Okay. Why is everyone so damn serious all the time? Life is so much easier if you have a great sense of humor, because there's a lot of BS that comes our way every single day. If you work in an area like murder and crime, you really do need to use a few F-bombs every once in a while. That's why I love smartass and sass. 
It's the subscription box meant for unashamed, mouthy folks like ourselves. And you get your fix of brazen humor each month. Smartass and Sass items are curated and personally tested by the SNS team. And as you can imagine, they are a group of really mouthy and really funny people. And their favorite thing is to get you to laugh every day. SNS partners with some of the best small businesses to bring you trendy and snarky items each month. I personally love the t-shirt because it says exactly what I'm thinking and I don't even have to open my mouth. Subscribe at www.smartassandsass.com and use code HOWNOT for 15% off your first subscription. That's www.smartassandsass.com, code HOWNOT for 15% off your first subscription. Follow Smartass and Sass on social media for your daily dose of attitude. So anyway, they were able to triangulate, so he rips out the car phone, but then he's like, uh-oh, now they know the car I'm in. So that's why he, this poor Reese guy, has William Reese has to be killed so that he can have it. So now he's cruising around with his, you know, let's stop at the gas station and pick up a newspaper, see if anyone's written about me, yeah. and I'm going to cut it out. That's so cool. And like send it to my mom for her scrapbook. It's unclear whether Kunanen had ever exchanged more than even a few words with Versace. It's actually unclear if they ever met at all. Right. But Maureen Orth details the following in her Vanity Fair article. Kunanen often dropped Versace's name, and during my investigation, she says, this is not me, I learned that the two men had met in the past. They'd come in contact in San Francisco nightclub Colossus in 1990. Versace was in town because he had designed costumes for the San Francisco Opera. That night, Kunanen was smugly pleased that Versace seemed to recognize him. I know you, Versace said, wagging a finger in the then 21-year-old's direction. Laga di como, no? And Kunanen replied, thank you for remembering me, Senor Versace. How polite. I kind of call bullshit. It is not clear that there was really anything to remember or that Andrew Kunanen had ever even been near Versace's house on Lake Como. During Versace's stay, Kunanen also met Eric Grunwald, now a Los Angeles lawyer at Colossus. Kunanen, in the company of a silver-haired gentleman, was still gushing over his Versace encounter. With characteristic hyperbole, he embellished it for Grunfeld, adding, I said, if you're Johnny Versace, then I'm Coco Chanel. Yeah. That's kind of nasty. Kunanen had apparently been living in Miami Beach for two months prior to his final murder. So he's killed these four people. Uh And then he's just chilling. He is, like, with very little effort. He's managed to stay off the radar, despite being on the FBI's most wanted list. At one point, he even used his own name to pawn a gold coin he had stolen from Miglin. That's one of the things he took from the house. The pawn shop, as required by law, with pawned goods, had submitted the ticket with a thumbprint of Cunanan's to the Miami police a week before Versace was shot, but it was overlooked by police. We see that a lot. Versace's memorial was held in Milan, on July 22nd, 1997, it was attended by Princess Diana, Elton John, and Naomi Campbell, to name a few. Do you remember that? Yeah, and he totally was probably watching over Versace's house. Like, how would he know? He looked yeah. up where he lived. Mm-hmm. Like, he's planning all of this. Well, like, he's a little stocky, huh? Yeah. Versace's death led to a more rigorous pursuit of Cunanan. Shocker. With a thousand agents across the country wow. taking part in one of the largest manhunts of the time. Finally, he has killed someone famous enough to make the police wake up. In his first attempt to keep low profile, Kunanen had broken into a Miami houseboat where he'd been hiding for over a week. On July 23, 1997, multiple police 
had discovered Kunanan's whereabouts and they were closing in on him. They were going to surround him. He shot himself in the mouth using the same gun he had used to kill Madsen, Reese, and Versace. He left no suicide note or explanation for his crimes. Well, shit, that makes my job a little harder. Yeah. So what could have happened? Rude. Rude. How could a person be capable of such horrific crimes? Because from the outset, Kunanen lacks all the hallmark signs of a future killer. Comes from an intact, loving family. No known criminals in his family pedigree. You know, I love to look for those. Well-educated in fancy private schools. All of his needs were met by everybody's accounts. What went wrong? Why is Andrew Kunanen on a podcast called How Not to Raise a Serial Killer when he gave no signs at all that he ever had a problem? Well, I have, you and I have talked about this. It's like, you're like, do this one. I'm like, no, because I don't know why that person killed. Right. I have a category for these types of killers and I store it in my head. And it's this like covert narcissist, maybe psychopathic, fledgling killer. And they've stumped me for years. And specifically, you and I talk about Chris Watts and Scott Peterson a lot. The profile is similar. It's not exactly the same. It's similar. These are men who present as normal through most of their lives, if not better than normal. And they all seem to have everything going for them. And yes, of course, a ton of psychopathic serial killers are charming. And And narcissists. And and narcissists. Yeah, yeah, we're getting to that. And yeah, because that's a great point. We we didn't know that those guys were psychopaths until after their crimes, right? Right. We probably could have assumed they were narcissists. And so psychopathic killers come from charmed homes. They just do. It's not, it's not simple like, oh, they're beaten. They become a killer. Most psychopaths are not abused. But there's always a kernel of violence to be found in their childhood, some hint of tormenting other children or torturing animals, maybe lying and cheating in school and then angling their way out of it and some fancy explanation. There's always something that I can start digging into when you see somebody who you would not have predicted being a criminal. A psychopath doesn't just wake up one day a psychopath. A narcissist doesn't wake up one day a narcissist, but you don't typically think of narcissists as killers. But lo and behold, they can be, and we're going to get into that. The only thing that any of us can get our hands on is the fact that he was the favorite child and he was indulged in every way. Do you think mom favored me? That's a whole different podcast. Yes, 100%. Andrew Kunanen was by far the favorite in his family. He was the youngest of four, and he was literally given everything under the sun. His dad was this guy named Modesto Pete Kunanen, and he came to the U.S. from the Philippines where he served in the Navy, and he was obsessed with the whole American dream. I'm going to make it. I'm going to be somebody. And after the Navy, he became a pretty successful stockbroker, and um, he was always wearing the fancy suits and buying the houses that he couldn't afford and driving the nice cars. From whatever I've got my hands on, what I can tell, the guy was a narcissist himself, very image conscious, manipulative. And he craved admiration and felt he was very self-important. As a true narcissist, he wanted to control people's impression of him. And that's always how you know when you're around a narcissist because it seems like they're so incredibly ego-strong, but really their entire self-worth depends on what you think of them. Yeah, very insecure. Right. And I was thinking when you're telling me this, like, that's totally his son. Mm -hmm. Like, as soon as they were thinking badly about him or speaking badly about them, he had to take charge. That's right. Take yeah, care of it. Exactly. Now, I've obviously never evaluated or even met the Kunanans. This is just how I interpret the information we have. Disclaimer. So, Andrew's father, Pete, set up their family in 
wealthy La Jolla and sent Mm. Andrew to the prestigious private school, the Bishop's School. Diplomats get sent there. My good friend Tori Thornton went there, and we'll talk about that in a second because she knew him. I think he only sent Andrew his favorite to that school, and I do not know if that's because he was the youngest and he was the only one who was still in high school or if it's just because it was his favorite. Some have speculated that Pete lavished his attentions on Andrew because he was the best-looking one. According to his brother, he was very smart. And when he was about 10 years old, he read the entire set of encyclopedias and he memorized oh it. And, and you remember we had those? Yeah. And you could ask him any question, pick up any edition and ask him a question, he'd tell you. Wow. According to his sister, he got, quote unquote, everything he needed. That's from his sister, Elena, who also spoke to Diane Sawyer in that interview. My dad gave him a sports car. He had the master bedroom in our house. <gasps> he had his own bath and everything. In fact, the sports car was something Pete gave him after Andrew missed out on a field trip. His he completely m- set him up for failure. Totally. His dad made it up to him after he missed this field trip by buying him a sports car at age 14 when he can't even drive it. His older siblings could have used that car, that maybe. That was kind of also like a status symbol for Pete. For Pete. Yeah. Oh, I bought my son this. Yeah. And but why I can't Christopher or Elena drive it? They're old enough. Because he's not as good looking. So just really focus on your prettiest children. <laughs> or don't. No, focus on your ugly children because the pretty ones are most likely to become the killers. Right. Yeah. I'm not a killer. Oh, just saying. <laughs> I wouldn't carry those drugs. Okay. Here we go. My college roommate. Do you remember Tori? She's yes. the best. She lived in La Jolla. Then she moved to Sun Valley. And then she went to college in Boulder and lived with me. Yes. She went to Bishop School. And when she moved away, when she was getting to know Andrew... But her friends, I remember her telling me her friends were like, he's way over the top. He was like, needed a lot of attention. He lied about everything. He lied about his heritage. He would say that he's Filipino royalty. But then he'd throw an Italian in there, and I'm not sure he's Italian or not. His dad led Andrew to believe that he could absolutely have anything he wanted and be anything he wanted. So to me, that reads like Pete, the dad, saw Andrew as just a narcissistic extension of himself. And we see that with narcissists, like with their children, even with our mom a little bit. And we'll talk about that. Like any insult against that child, any criticism is personal to a narcissist. So Andrew represented what Pete wanted and he was good looking. So he was happy to spoil him and catapult him to success. And narcissists do that. They often put their favorite kid on a pedestal and have no boundaries with them. But we're going to go over some reasons why that can have devastating consequences, especially if the child has NPD too, if the child's narcissistic. So our mom had a little bit of this, would you say, Heidi? I mean, my mom, our mom was, she, she had various, I mean, she was a borderline personality disorder, but she, part of being borderline is narcissism. And she was, you know, very over the top, yes. very pretty, very extravagant, you know, very showy. Yes. Um, but she, until we were older, she did could not handle anyone criticizing us. No. But I wore her bracelet today because I felt guilty because I knew we were going to do a little shit talking about her. May she rest in peace. Yes. Um, you know, you love your mom for who she is, and this is who she was. So this is an example of how we could do no wrong. I was 15 and Heidi was 20. And mom went to Palm Springs with Bill, her boyfriend, and we decided to throw a party. Oh. Do you remember that? No. The Alveo house? Oh, you'll remember it soon. Uh, oh, yes. I do now. Mm-hmm. Does no it names. have something to do with bottle caps? So, <laughs> mom, <laughs> this is such a good story. Mom comes home a day early. I'm asleep with some friends, and uh-huh. Heidi's gone. 
And the party had been outside. So the house is okay inside. And all of a sudden the door opens and I'm like, shit. I'm sure mom and Bill got in a fight. Yeah. Anyway, so she comes home and I'm panicking. I'm strang- like struggling running around the house. And she goes outside and sees bottle caps, beer cans, cigarettes in the pool. And I could get away with anything in my house as long as I said, I have no idea. So of course my mom looks at me and she's like, Michelle, what happened in the backyard? And I'm like, I have no idea. And so she says, point proven, pretty girl. I hate you. She says, oh my God, those damn neighbors must have had a party. I forgot that part. And threw all their trash into our backyard. Because God forbid we not participated or had a party. Yeah. And I'm like, that must be what happened, Mom. They must have thrown all their trash. Her boyfriend is skimming the pool looking at me like, I'm on to you. Like, Funny that didn't work for me when I snuck out. Well, because you weren't very clever about that. I said that, I didn't know the first time. Well, yeah. in, your, in the lock of the window. She just couldn't see flaws in us because a flaw in us was a flaw in, or criticism of herself. Definitely. And she would inflate us. So let's go back to Andrew Kunan, and he's not nearly as interesting oh, as yeah. we are, but um, here's the thing. Like, th- these guys, I'm just like, what the fuck? I want you to fit into all of my pretty boxes. Oh, an impulsive type killer. Yes. Oh, schizophrenic type killer. Oh, a psychopathic type killer. What's wrong with this guy? Because before then, my psychopaths always show that they're psychopathic before we get here. You can tell they're unemotional. They don't have empathy, remorse. They lack guilt. They don't connect the same way. They might not become criminal. Most psychopaths do not become criminal. But you know who they are along the way. This guy's just a narcissist. Well, there's narcissists everywhere, right? Like, we all know them. I mean, psychopaths are what end out of 100. Narcissists are far more common. Can you be both? Yeah, well, psychopaths are narcissistic, but most but narcissists are not psychopathic. Okay. So narcissism is a trait of psychopathy. But basically, the key is the psychopaths lack the guilt, remorse, and um, empathy, whereas a narcissist still feels those things. Oh. Well, I definitely don't think he felt any remorse or empathy. No, it doesn't. Well, but we don't know. Nobody talked to him after the murders. True. And he hadn't shown that throughout childhood. He was narcissistic. He was obviously super, you know, entitled and just thought the world of himself. But we didn't see psychopathic signs. So then I'm like, okay, what does it mean when a narcissist is a killer? Well, look what we found. If you do this to a narcissistic child, here's what can happen. If you spoil when rotten and you overwhelm them with feeling that they are better than someone else, everyone else, and entitled, then all of a sudden the old adage becomes true. You can spoil a kid so much that you can create a monster. And I can hear people in the background now saying, oh, that's really fucking cool. Light you bulb. blame some good-intentioned parent <laughs> for effing up their kids. You know, like, oh, you loved your kids too much. No, I don't think that's necessarily what it is, is you're giving them everything. They don't have to work for anything. You get a car when you're 14. Who does that? A nice car. Right. I don't think think that's about love. I think it's having his dad feel good about himself. And he was just probably a toy or whatever it's called in this whole game that the dad is presenting. Right. And so... uh, It's more about the dad. It is. But then how do you live up to your dad's expectations or what... I mean, he didn't make a lot of money. He didn't have a great career, right? No, he just had sugar daddies. Right. So he's not living up to what the expectations were from his dad. And he didn't feel like he was progressing like his dad did or having a great career or being successful like his dad did. So, I mean, that you're setting your 
any child up for failure when you just give them everything that makes no sense. It makes no sense to give a 14-year-old a sports car who can't even legally drive it. Right. But spoiling somebody can't make a murderer, right? Or can it? I would have said no, but I feel like we stumbled upon a possibility of how you can actually take a child who wouldn't have otherwise become violent and add to the violence. And listen, I am a huge advocate for showering your children with love. And I'm going to talk about research that indicates the more you make your child feel warmth and love, the better self-esteem they have, the more successful they are, just better happy kid they are. The problem is if you take a kid who already has a predisposition for narcissism and then you confirm and lead them to believe that they are better than others or that they deserve more than others, then you can really fuel a fire that can lead to violence. It's a fine line to walk and your kids need to feel your warmth. The key is not to make them feel entitled. Right. And like I hear podcasts like this and I'm just like, oh, what does that even mean? Like. How do you even, and why is a parent always the bad guy? If someone's a murderer, let's look at mom. That's not the point of this podcast because there is enough blame to go. We're already so guilt-ridden. I mean, you know my daughter. You just had her for three days. She's a tough cookie. And I I feel so much guilt. And I'm like, well, what have I done wrong? But part of me is just like, she came out this way. Definitely. You were there. Yeah. Like, she came out this way. I, I'm doing the best to nudge her. And, you know, she's a wonderful child. And I'm super proud of her. And I love her as much as the others. But... She's not um, easy. Right. She's not easy. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> I know. She's my best, best baby girl. Um, and I recognize that. But you, ha it, it's important for parents to realize you can't take all the credit and you can't take all the blame. Yeah. So it's a double-edged sword. Like, we give ourselves a lot of credit when, you know, Charlotte, my daughter, was an easy toddler, could travel anywhere. I took all the credit. Then my son was born. And I'm like, why can't I travel with this kid? He's a disaster. It's they come out certain ways. Well, if your kid comes out already a bit narcissistic and then you fuel that fire, yes. you can put them on this path. All I can relate that to is like your kids in sports. There's the kids whose parents or dad or mom are like, why aren't you playing my my kid? He's been mm -hmm. sitting on the bench. And the reality is like your, your kid isn't that good. Right. Like he kind of he hasn't hit a ball or whatever it is. Um, but. And I know it's fair to have him play, but if you're like in the championship game, you're not going to put in no. the bench warmer. You're going to put in the the, the good players. Yeah. So I would tell my kids if they were sitting on the bench, I wouldn't go and complain to the coach. I would be like, you need to work harder. You yeah. need to hit ground balls on the weekends or you need to mm -hmm. go run laps to be faster at football or whatever it is. They're not entitled yeah, to the position. I would tell them, you, you need to work hard. You need to earn it. You're right. not going to just be giving it. No. Yeah. And that's... I definitely think that's what Andrew missed out on yeah, is any there was to work no, for anything. No work ethic, nothing. He didn't want for anything. No. But there's actually research to back this up. There's a study completed out of the Netherlands, and there's been other studies since to support this. They took 656 children between the ages of 7 and 12 and their parents, and they found that parents who reported that they believed their child was more special than other children or deserved more in life than others, those children were more likely to develop narcissistic traits. Okay, of course, this is where I jump in and I'm like, wait a minute, how do you know that the parents just didn't tacitly pass on their narcissistic genes to that child? Because we know personality in a large part is inherited. It is, it's both environment and inherited. But I think the key is that it's this combination of no matter how your child became narcissistic, the kids who had the tendencies already, 
It was fuel on the fire. But listen to how grossly behaving these parents were. They would lie about their kids' IQ. They would exaggerate the kids' IQ. They would, the, the researchers would make up names of like famous people or books. And they'd be like, oh yeah, my child's familiar with that. Yes, my child knows that author. Yeah, my child's read that book. All bullshit. And it's really about them, right? So they're exaggerating all of these qualities about their kids. Those kids ended up to be more narcissistic. Again, like I say, it's hard to disentangle. Is it because their parents were narcissists? But it seemed to have like an explosive effect. The kids who are already narcissists and then you confirm for them that they walk on water and speak to God, they can become the worst of the narcissists. So what's the big deal? We all know narcissists, and they're usually not slaughtering people with the claw end of a hammer. They're absolutely everywhere, and they're hard to work with, and they're harder to date, and it's certainly difficult if you marry one. Mm. But at its worst, narcissism (laughs) can actually lead to violence. You think of a psychopath, like I said, but this person still has remorse and guilt and empathy. Because at the heart of it, narcissists are super fragile. And psychopaths are not. Not as much. They don't care as much. A narcissist is so fragile that when they aren't worshipped, they aren't admired, they're not getting what they want, they can lash out so aggressively that they can become violent. Narcissists are not generally killers, but you can end up with this combination of a narcissistic kid, the dad identifies him as the narcissistic kid, confirms for the kid that you are special, you are different. And then well, when he thinks that's going to be taken from him. Right. Well, that's when he panics, it. when he loses his sugar daddy, when he loses, mm-hmm. shit, my world's falling apart. All of my values wrapped up yeah. in this image I've created. Um, where a psychopath might not care really what you think. Like they do like to be fed. They like supply. But their goals are so specific. They're so goal-driven and they don't. It's mm-hmm. it's different. This is just a true narcissist. He might have psychopathic tendencies. I've never talked to him. I don't know what he felt after the murders. It doesn't look like a lot of guilt or remorse happening. But remember, these are spree kills. I also think it's weird that he killed himself. We see that in spree killing, and we see that in narcissists. So now shit gets real. Once Andrew goes off to college, his dad actually spiraled financially. So what they didn't know, what Andrew didn't know, what nobody knew is that he was engaged in all this fraudulent trading activity. And he was moving from brokerage house to brokerage house, smaller firms to kind of hide what he was doing. But he had misappropriated about $106,000. And once he was found out, they came to collect that debt. And his family was left with $700. So do you know what he does? No. Runs back to the Philippines. He abandons the family completely. Oh, he he left everybody. Kind of like how Cunanan kills himself. His dad was like, oop. Got I'm out. caught. I'm out. Yeah. Abandons everybody, including Andrew, and moves to Manila. Andrew oh. goes and tracks his dad down in Manila and finds him living in absolute squalor. I think that's the turning point for Kunanan going down and seeing his dad in squalor. Kind of oh. the king has been dethroned. Triggered. The first in line for the throne, me, the prince, I'm dethroned. Um, and that's kind of where maybe the the psychopathology rises up and he now becomes... Maybe he just thought, oh my gosh, everything's been a lie. Everything's been a lie. Because he was being lied to by his dad all the time. And here he had his dad on a pedestal Mm -hmm. and then he sees his dad in filth and living right. like on the streets or whatever and he was that was like an aha moment like yeah and like who am i yeah if that's if my dad's nothing i'm nothing okay now so soon after he goes to san francisco where there's a more active gay community and he becomes very active in it and then you do see a little violence here he starts making really violent pornography we know he's into snm and stuff mm-hmm. but now he's filming it and this is actually before he was you know having snm with his victims but there is some undercurrent of violence with right. this guy. He 
I mean, it could be sexual. A lot of times, you, you know, we'll cover killers in the future who are literally only killed because it's the only way they could climax. One of the most prolific Russian serial killers in the world, this is the only way he could have an orgasm. What? So he would, he could only climax during no, watching somebody you. die. Thank you. Oh, you did. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so he enters these relationships with these older men. They bankroll his life. We talked about how his sugar daddy, Norman, cuts him off in 1996. And that's when everything starts to disintegrate, yeah. his high flying. He yeah. thought he was going to be like his dad and just live in filth. It's all around the same time, right? Like his dad's in squalor. His latest sugar daddy cuts him off, so he has no access to the glamour life anymore. Um, you know, and could that have triggered his violent rampage, his kind of reversal of his fortunes? I don't know. I think that's too simplistic, but something did, right? Something set him on this pathway. You know, we can say that, like, once he killed somebody, he wasn't really careful about making right. sure it didn't come back to himself. He did. Like, when he was on the run, he knew to, like, throw out the cell phone. He knew to switch cars. But before that, he was kind of sloppy, which makes me think maybe he hadn't intended to kill Jeffrey Trail. Because he does a couple things. Like, he leaves that um, bag, which has his name on it, at the house that we talked about. But he also um, leaves a message on Trail's home phone that has Kunanan inviting Trail over to Madsen's house. So he was a little sloppy about that, but then he got better at hiding his tracks and switching cars and doing all of that when he realizes that, you know, he's on the run. So now he's deep into his killing spree. And from spree killers who I've actually talked to in real life, they describe this euphoric high during the kill, mm -hmm. but then also this desperation at the same time, like just this acceptance that I'm going to try to live as long as I can or I want to go out quickly, but I know this is the end of the road. None of them are like, oh, I'm going to, you know, they might attempt to it to keep going, but it's it's really hard to live after you have, if it's a spree killing, it's like so much all at once. Everyone's looking for you at once. Right. And it's hard. Like, he he's wanted not to gonna be go. go going down in this big dramatic scene. But also yeah. I feel like that's a good point because here he's just killed. I mean, he did kill a, a rich man, but yeah. at the end, he's like, I'm going to get caught anyways. This yep. is not going to go well. I am going to take out yeah, Versace. Versace's going down. Because then I'm going to be notorious, mm -hmm. and then I'm going to feel good about myself, and then it, I can just kill myself. Afterwards. I have a theory about that kind of mentality, and it's like, we used to never have school shooters, right? Those were kids until we had Columbine. My theory is, these are kids who would have been suicidal normally, but once they realize if they take a few people with them, they remain infamous. They, mm -hmm. Their life is not forgotten, and they go down in a blaze of glory. And I don't think every suicidal person's like that, but I think on occasion you get somebody who realizes that they can make their mark on the earth even though they're going to kill themselves as a teenager. I think you're absolutely right about Kunana, and it's like, well, shit, I'm special. And as you said, the fact that they had said something to be remembered, mm -hmm. he gave them something to remember. Exactly. So looking at Andrew's killing spree, I have to say, I did struggle a lot. I sat with this a lot. And it's hard to connect the dots between just being a simple narcissist and becoming a murderer. But we need to, like we just said, acknowledge that it's not that simple. I want to talk about this just really quickly, how narcissism can lead to violence, the mechanism behind it, which is they feel so special that they'll manipulate, they'll lie, they'll cheat, they'll steal to get what they deserve. And at its worst, when that's really bad, that can lead to domestic violence, stalking, even murder. Because if you are what they deserve, they're going to come after that and they will try to control it. And it's the fragility of their belief that they're special. That belief that they're special has to come from supply from other people telling them they're special and admiring them. 
And when that is threatened, they go from, oh, you're not worth the ground you walk on, I walk on, to, you better not leave me, you can't leave me, because their supply for their self-worth is tied up in how other people see them. So if you get somebody who has this strong sense of, of self and ego, they're at their weakest when they are experiencing criticism and rejection. They're right. allergic to it. They just can't face it. And they almost switch from that inflated self-esteem to somebody who's clingy, fragile, super weak. And typically, a narcissist is not going to be abusive in a relationship, but they can be when they're forced with that level of rejection. And you get to see a, a glimpse of it when you talk about narcissistic rage. That's a real thing, and most narcissists do have it. When they're questioned or their um, authority or specialness is challenged, or they're feeling left or abandoned, rage, just absolute rage, not violence, but rage comes out. They can be unprovoked, fly off the handle. So it's not a far stretch to see how that can be, you know, short jump to violence. All right, so takeaway here, how do we know we're raising a narcissist versus just a confident kid? And we all want confident children, right? No, for, yeah, especially in this day and age. Well, I like I said, I don't think when you're spoiling kids or giving them everything that they want without working for anything, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of course, you're, that's not going to have a good result. But I think you can spoil kids with support and love and like you were saying, and even sometimes point out their negative things or like if you want to be well and do well in sports. You need to work hard. You, you to have to give work. them a work ethic, mm -hmm. but then reward them once they do it. You know, I, I just think when you give people, even adults, if you just keep giving and giving without that person ever showing any kind of like drive or whatnot, then you're going to create somebody who's unappreciative, who mm -hmm. demands things, who thinks they're entitled, like we said. Well, experts take that a little further. They say the actual difference is if they feel more entitled and better, the most healthy ego people we know, they don't tend to need to take it, tear anyone else down, and they also don't care what you think of them. Mm -hmm. they're, they're solid in their opinion. So a confident child doesn't need constant praise. They don't need to constantly right. be told that they're good because it comes from within. Their confidence comes from their own sense of self. From working hard or for right. earning it. Their supply yeah. is internal. And I think it was Malcolm Gladwell who put it in one of his books, or it could have been somebody else, where there was a study. If you take two groups of children, with one, you praise them for getting good grades on a test. For the other group, you praise how hard they must have worked to get that good grade. The kids who are just praised for the grade choose easier tests the next time. They're totally afraid to fail, whereas the kids who are praised for their work pick more challenging work. So yeah. there's there's a key to that somewhere, uh, making heard, sure that you— I heard that you're supposed to tell a child not necessarily, I'm proud of you. You need to tell them you should be very proud of yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, because you're the one who's put in the work and did the time and or whatever it is that they're doing that they have to have their own be pride, prideful of themselves. Yeah. And according to the authors of the study, there was this other finding that the children who reported feeling warmth from their parents, independent of the parents saying they were warm to the child, that if the child said they felt warmth, they were more likely to have the highest self-esteem, mm -hmm. not narcissism. So I guess the key is don't let your kids feel entitled and better than, but make sure they feel loved and warmth. Definitely. Um, and then the author says, teaching parents to be warm and affectionate without telling their children they're better than others and without conveying to their children that they are more entitled to, than others is the key. And more studies need to be done. But if there's a magic 
you know, formula for that. I think that's where we should aim. God, there's just more fucking pressure on the mom. And I do feel sorry for his mom and his siblings. Like I would love, it would be fascinating to actually really talk to them and see what, how they felt or what they're doing now, because they were raised by the same two parents, maybe differently, Mm -hmm. but they're still the same messages and the same type of parenting. So they're the, I'd be interested to see how they they change their last name. And it's, I struggle with this because, you know, I want this podcast to be a place where parents can come and a place where true crime addicts can come. But it's like, I struggle reading this stuff because I I know I mess up all the time. I think none of us are perfect parents Mm -hmm. and we all make mistakes. But I have found, I have three kids, they're older, they're adults now, but I've always always thought to apologize for my bad Mm -hmm. behavior, that I am a person, I am human, I do make mistakes, but I also recognize them and I know how to be accountable for them. And I do apologize. Like, it's fine. It's okay to make a mistake. Yeah, accountability is key. There is a message for all of us here that you're not helping your child because really their worth has to come from within. It can't be supply from others. Right. And a narcissist, when they're not getting enough supply, they'll go to old people, like old relationships who used to supply them and like look fish for compliments Mm -hmm. so that they can go on. None of them are really super functioning adults, I should just say, because they're used to getting everything handed to them, no work involved in getting it. And my kids have had to work for anything. I'm not saying they're perfect, but they've had to work for everything that they have right now. Except for the fancy bats and shit we got them for Christmas. But we didn't buy them for them right away. Like they wanted a bat. We had to to wait wait for Christmas. We had to wait for like a a holiday or, or, you know, save for it or whatever it was. Like they didn't get. That's true. They didn't get it right away. They weren't the first person with the iPhone. Yeah. They didn't get the $500 bats right away. Like where everybody else had, not everyone, but many families had them already. We made them wait or, you know. Meanwhile, last year, my kids, what they got for Christmas was lift uh, season pass to June Mountain where kids ski free. I was like, look! (laughs) Oh, gosh, yeah. It's genius. genius. I'm sorry. I thought that it was smart, but I do have to tell one little story about Heidi Christmas. Oh, jeez. Listen, you come on my podcast, it's going to happen. Okay. Maybe they'll want you to come again to learn more stories about you. Maybe tit for tat. I never wanted to know what my Christmas presents were. I loved the surprise. I loved opening them up. So my mom would barely hide them from me. And I'd be like, in her trunk one day, I'm like, skateboard, now I know what I'm getting. But sometimes she would make you wrap your own gifts. That came later. But this particular, (laughs) my poor mom, she was a piece. Um, (laughs) Heidi would search the house high and low, find her presents. Michelle, do you want to see her presents? I'm like, no, stop it. Unwrap them, don't tell mom. Wrap them back up, put them away. And so Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, when we opened them, she was always like, <laughs> oh, because <laughs> she's disappointed because she already knew everything she was getting. And she was like, like Eeyore. That's <laughs> true. Well, I don't think I was like Eeyore, but I was disappointed. Yes. Yeah. And then you would be sad but that's on Christmas. A, that's a perfect example right there. Like I, I should have been excited about uh-huh. it, but because I'm getting things that I want, but then I already know. So now yeah, they're not like not a excited. big deal. So it's nothing to look There's forward a, to. And also, um, they say like things that you want so bad, like, oh, I can't, I just want a PlayStation so bad. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. They Badly. open it, they have it, and then they're not even, you know, they're yeah. like, oh, whatever, I have a PlayStation. Yeah. Like yeah, they, they don't true. even appreciate it. Um, well, thank you, Heidi. Thank you so much for being here today. It was nice to have a mom who's my sister and can keep me in line and, Help me not take myself so seriously. Um, And thank you for not telling all the stories. Thank you for having me, even though I made you. All right. I'm Michelle Ward, 
And this has been How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. See you next week. How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 Media production, executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna. Our editor is Emily Crane. Our music was created by Josh Cook, with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at H N T R A S K. And if you'd like to share a story or ask a question, you can email us at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer at gmail.com or call and leave a voicemail at 818 392 4403. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.